Hello, and welcome back to the fourth and final season of RoyCast, the original Succession podcast. My name is Brendan, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Gabby. Hey, Gabby. Hey, Brendan. Hello, friends. And joining us today is a critic and programmer for film at Lincoln Center. We're pleased to be joined by Maddie Whittle. Hi, Maddie. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Delighted to have you. Uh, Maddie, when I originally reached out to you a few weeks ago about appearing on this episode, I had the cutesy idea of inviting you to appear alongside your very smart and prolific fiance, Charles Bermesco, since we knew this was going to be a wedding episode. And I thought it would be a fun opportunity to have two critics I like appear as a couple. Then Charles was unavoidably detained, so he's kind of left you at the altar, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> exactly. But he's, uh, but he's not missing out on anything, because this is just a, a nice, normal episode of Succession. What will we, what will we even find to talk about? Um, we'll have to do power rankings and figure out who won the week. It turned out to barely be about weddings at all. Very uh, yeah. misleading. Misleading title to that one. Very misleading, yeah. We'll have to talk about you know other things, talk about HBO Max becoming Max. Um, you know, I think, if anything, I'm just thankful that, uh, that Logan Roy was not alive to see that. <laughs> Uh, because, yeah, we are going to do our usual plot summary, but of course, I mean, there's one very big thing that happens in this episode, but we, 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 uh, there are a few other details I want to make sure we don't skip over. So the quick kind of like plot download on season four, episode three, Connor's wedding. So en route to the celebration, Roman receives a call from Logan, himself boarding a plane to Stockholm to parlay with Matson. Logan instructs Roman to fire Jerry, which he does badly. And in turn, Logan tells Tom he'll shortly be terminating Sid Peach as well. At the wedding, the siblings task Shiv with advising Connor that Logan won't make it when they receive the call from Tom that Logan is receiving CPR on the plane and has likely already passed. After an emotional sequence in which all the siblings react to the news, the next moves are contemplated. Carolina and the C-suite begin drafting a statement for the press, while Tom discreetly instructs Greg to leak the news with the crucial detail that he was at Logan's side as he passed. The younger Roy children decide to issue the statement themselves and depart the wedding for Teterboro Airport, where the Waystar jet returns with Logan's body. Connor marries Willa before a handful of witnesses as Shiv declares to the press that the children intend to be there to shepherd Waystar through. So, yeah, again, this is in classic TV terms, right? This is the, the one where Logan dies, quote unquote, right? Uh, this is the thing we all knew had to happen this season, that they set it up as this kind of shocking reality check. I want to take a victory lap here and say that we saw this coming, but we kind of did and didn't. What we've avoided talking about on the podcast so far this season has been the early coverage from critics who saw the first few episodes and were all alluding to some kind of game-changing twist. I then spent like several weeks overthinking this because surely they wouldn't be referring to the thing we all knew was going to happen this season <laughs> as an internet breaker or something. Uh, yet the first couple episodes, like they all point in that direction that we talked about uh, of Logan being taken off the table in some way, right? Like I keep thinking of the McBain parody on The Simpsons where his partner is showing off the photo of his boat called the Live Forever right before he gets blown apart. That's what Logan was doing this whole season saying, he's, I'm going to live forever and then immediately dies, right? But this is, the, I mean, at the same time, this is, you know, what we said in some of our preseason coverage that the show needed and what we kind of were, were hoping would happen you know we wanted there to be a, a big part of the reason that I think you know Gabby and I talked about wanting five seasons was the hope that we would eventually get like a Logan free final season we're getting a mostly Logan free seven episodes and change um, that shows how the kids deal with the world without him you know and that feels really necessary to complete the show's thesis 
not only to demonstrate that the world doesn't just end with Logan, but to tell a full story about the cycles of abuse by showing how that abuser's presence is still felt uh, in his absence. Gabby, how surprised were you by this development happening in this episode? Yeah, I mean, I always felt like Logan would definitely die before the show ended. You know, early on in the series, you're thinking like it might be a final episode type of thing, um, you know, before you you kind of get uh, a handle on the shape of the show. But even with the first two episodes of this season that were sort of portending a, a sooner than expected fall for Logan, I still was shocked that it was this early. Um, you know, I was thinking maybe like episode five six seven so the fact that it happened when it did that it also kind of happened like a third of the way through the episode um you know when there were some plot points already in motion it was it was really shocking and i was just like trying to think has there been a mid-episode tv death this shocking i thought about will gardner from the good wife even though it's like you know different show different kind of death but yeah i mean the tone of this episode up until that phone call was kind of like any early succession wedding big event episode which we talked about last week is uh you know always sort of um being overshadowed by some sort of business drama so you know you're sort of bracing for it but settling in a bit first and then that call comes and it's it's so deeply disorienting and you know clearly what jesse armstrong and mark mark mylod were were striving for um but it's it's still really commendable that something like logan's death which is basically you know the premise and the promise of the show could still elicit such shock from everybody. Um, well, at least, you know, for me and for most of my Twitter feed. And, you know, part of that is because it was a pretty ordinary, kind of awful way to go out. Like, Logan Roy died on the toilet on his private plane. There was no bedside goodbye or flattening of the heart monitor. And, like, it's not unusual for succession to subvert these expectations, but it was still so ballsy and such an effective choice to give Logan this kind of undignified death. Um, It also, you know, narratively speaks to where the Roys are under Logan, um, just at a place of utter, you know, kind of decay and indignity. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not the kind of show where one of the characters is going to die in a hail of gunfire, right? Right. Or... (laughs) Or, or that he's, or that it's going to be like at the hands of someone you know who's betrayed him or something like that. Like emotionally, like the gravitas and the stakes are there, but it's yeah, it's not that kind of show. They make the choice for it to be just extremely everyday and mundane, right? Right, but yeah, you think about like um, you know episode two of the series, shit show at the fuck factory, which is sort of you know the the other time that Logan had a a major health incident uh happens you know in the first episode of the show and that you know that second episode is the is the kids in the c-suite all um you know trying to 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 get organized um but you know even in 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 that episode you know you you get the nice sort of hospital room and and um, bed and, and his family is there and so just just the way that this was so very abject was um, uh, you know I think reflective of where where the show has come and, and you know some of the shock for me was less textual in the sense that I didn't think they were going to get rid of Brian Cox so early and <laughs> just yeah. uh, mer- lay him off you know we know the show doesn't use flashbacks or other devices where we would see a dead character again so I mean that was it and I wasn't sure if he was eligible for for an Emmy, but um, Brendan, you said he 
You can? Well, I believe so. I'm not like I'm not super up on these submission rules there, but there was a variety piece this week that that broke down. Basically, he can submit leader supporting, or as long as he doesn't appear in more than half of the episodes of the season, he could also submit in uh, in guest in guest actor. But I mean, yeah, I mean that's a huge part of the reason that we weren't sure if it would happen this early, despite all the sort of like plot indications that way, just because it seems so crazy to take an actor like Brian Cox and a presence like that off the table so early in the season as much as we like know that like the show structurally kind of demands that to happen at some point how did Maddie I want to bring you in here how did how did this strike you basically what did you think about this move did you see this coming at all or how did it feel to you I cannot claim to have expected this uh I I didn't anticipate that the wedding episode was also going to be Logan's death episode but I will say I had seen a tweet earlier in the day on Sunday that was something like, you know, if you care about succession uh, and you're not watching with everyone else, don't go online. And I, so you know there's going to be something very significant that happens. Like, okay. And you know that Logan is going to be presumably dying uh, in this season, as you said. You know, this film is, or the show is sort of structured in a way that you know that we have to see what happens after the loss of Logan, you know, the, 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 the story sort of requires it. And so I was kind of, when they got the call and it, you know, Tom said that he's sick, he's very, very sick. I, you, I, I kind of thought, okay, yeah, this is, so this is, this is how it's happening. This is, this is happening now. And it really, it reminds me a little bit of the, the way uh, Don Corleone dies in, in The Godfather, you know, he's just playing with his grandson in the garden and he just collapses and it's very mundane and very private and very kind of undignified. And um, it's kind of, I don't know, this felt in a way like the show would do this, you know, but I also, uh, at the same time, I think it's kind of, I think it's like in conversation with The Sopranos as uh, uh, in, in very specific, like, the sense that the Sopranos died with Tony Soprano, this show lives beyond Logan Roy. And it's like sort of important that maybe our generation that kind of grew up in a Sopranos world gets this version where you get to see how the, the adult children go on to live their lives and how things play out. I don't know, to me, it feels like it's kind of in conversation with all of this stuff. So you're a, you're a Tony dies person for the Sopranos, right, Maddie, is that it? Oh yeah, yeah. I guess uh, I guess I should have prefaced with that. But yeah, that's. It's still it's still contentious. I I feel like I feel like the interpretation has definitely swung in that direction over the years. I'm not sure if it used to be more evenly split, but I think a lot of the things that Chase has said over the years has certainly in, swung things uh, in that direction. But yeah, I mean, there's there's a sense in which you know Logan kind of goes out the way he probably wanted to, right? Like a big reason that you know he just kind of drops dead. You know, the show implies, obviously, that he's been drawing so much energy and, like, fueling himself on these conflicts with his kids over the years. Brian Cox almost seems to be aging in reverse, like, weirdly, over the course of the show. And there's a great sort of, like, parallel to Logan sort of being revitalized by these battles with his children. And, you know, the show's come such a long way since season one, and you can see almost over the course of the first season where Logan's recovering from his stroke. And then in the second season where there really is just like a focus change and everything is so much sharper where Cox like recognizes how special this show is and this opportunity is. And he really starts tearing 
into the role. And there's a sense in which Logan kind of goes out the way he might have wanted to, where he's, you know, he's on a plane to do the big deal. He's, uh, he's sticking it to his kids again. He's, he's putting the screws to Roman one more time. He's toying with them like he, like he so enjoys doing. Skipping uh, his son's he, wedding. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he kind of goes out on his own terms, right? Yeah, I just want to say about the the actual choice of plane death. I, I have a, just a quick story, personal story. I know Mark Mylod said in that Variety article they had to look into the literal forensic protocol um, uh, for what it would have been in a case like this. And um, yeah, last fall I was on an international flight, um, very far from my destination and departure point, um, when a passenger got very very sick. It was the middle of the night and the lights suddenly turned on and I had my almost two-year-old sleeping on me and I was like you know what the hell is going on and then I um, saw a few rows in front of me that uh, there was a medical team and a bunch of people hovered around and obviously you know this was a commercial flight I didn't know the person it's a different situation but um, it was completely harrowing Um, you know there's this sort of like hushed urgency of the flight staff all the procedures all the information seeking, uh, the pilot telling people, you know, not to move, the claustrophobia. Um, there was, you know, a, a woman screaming. It was extremely hard to stay calm. Um, the sick person, thankfully, did not die, but we did have to make an emergency landing somewhere random. Um, the whole ordeal at, uh, lasted a really long time, and it, it just, like honestly affected me for for a while. So. Um, you know, I thought this whole decision to kill Logan on a plane was pretty smart. It's not lost on me how abject and dark it is. And I don't care how nice your private plane is. You know, like an airplane, is, is it's still an airplane. It's still a really shitty place to die. And, um, you know, the kids not being on land either was fitting. I like that the goal with the direction here was to give the characters kind of no room to breathe. Lots of confined spaces, hysterical uncertainty, um, you know, paparazzi-like camera invasiveness. Um, it was all so effective, but, you know, in turn, difficult viewing experience. Just, you know, this is typical, you know, Maddie, like you said, this is kind of, you know, how he would go out, right? Like, and I know Mylod said in that article, it often happens that the real tragedies of life occur in such an inartistic manner that they hurt us by their crude violence, their absolute incoherence, their absurd want of meaning, their entire lack of style. They affect us just as vulgarity affects us. Um, that sort of the, the comment about absolute incoherence, I think, is just central to this episode because the um, mm-hmm. th- them not knowing you know this sort of epistemological problem of do we how do we know he's really dead or do we know he's really dead um is both being experienced by the kids and you know the the c-suite and everyone involved to varying degrees but also by the audience you know we are invested in whether or not logan roy is dead and so it's the 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 a, a huge part of the drama of the the episode is sort of feeling feeling out within yourself how much you are willing to hold out hope in the way that some of the Roy children are persisting in holding out hope, um, whether that's out of denial or in, in most cases, it seems that it's out of denial. But it's, you know, Shiv says, no, I can't have that. Like, it's an inability to yeah. sort of grasp that this is actually happening. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All very, very normal grief reactions, especially because the situation was so so unfortunate so vague so so remote from them 
Yeah, and I mean that indefinite, uncertain quality of the event where they're getting everything, you know, very garbled, like talking on a cell phone on a plane. Like the audio quality is not good, right? right. Like they're all like they're having trouble hearing Tom at first and figuring out what's going on. When you're talking about Logan, you're talking about a character who, you know, central to the way he's been depicted is this ability to kind of massage reality and shape it. And there's this sense in which, you know, if we want to return to the metaphor of like the invisible cat in the box or like the Schrodinger's cat, Logan's death is like a, a, a an undefinable either or situation because you can't officially declare him dead until a doctor looks at it, which can't happen as long as he's on the plane. And so there's that really interesting touch where Shiv floats the idea of like, can we just keep the plane in the air until we figure out what we want to do with this statement? Almost, almost like, you know, if we keep him in the air, he's not quite dead yet, right? Like, like it won't become reality until he touches down. This thing can still be massaged in some way. Yeah, it's at a certain point, they're kind of shock and denial at the fact of his death or the prospect of his death, at least sort of gives way into this like almost like opportunistic like we we can stay in denial a little longer or we can you know it's uh it kind of happens gradually in like the second third yeah it's interesting how they all grapple with their denial i would say ken is probably you know in the least amount of denial he accepts it pretty easily but you know for roman he just doesn't want it to be true at all i mean we know roman as the the you know, the one who's throughout the series kind of had the the hardest time accepting that dad is dead. It's actually funny because I, I rewatched uh, sh- the shit show at the fuck factory episode. And there's this hilarious bit where, you know, someone, the doctor says, he, well, he's an older patient. Roman's like, he's not an older patient. And Ken's like, dude, he just turned 30. And Roman's like, yeah, but physically he's still in his 70s and he's in great shape. Like, turned 80, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I think like there was so much anxiety. The language that Tom and Frank are using, yeah, again, it's not totally clear. It's the 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 phone quality is terrible. They're mostly trying to keep calm. You know, we don't really see the body. We see like a couple of partial shots of it. Um, there's like at one point where you can see the body lifting from from the chest compressions. Um, you know, and it, it was hard. I think as a viewer to 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 not think well you know what shenanigans could the show be pulling what x y and z is this like i i sort of like uh, almost like starting to identify with roman like well they're still in the air and and they're still doing chest compressions and we don't know like you know we don't know and i know and and, and i know that brendan uh his prediction was that logan would be would not necessarily die but would be incapacitated uh indefinitely kind of you know similar to the, to the first season, but just, just for, you know, a longer period of time and then, uh, but not actually, actually die. Um, you know, a lot of it was also uh, about information gathering and that's, you know, Kendall's big thing. That's when he comes in and he, I mean, he, he has uh, such a difficult time accepting that he has no control over that situation. He freaks out and he calls Jess, asks her to get him like the best, airplane medical team in the world like he's just making shit up like he's airplane, uh, airplane medicine like it's a separate practice it's a separate field <laughs> right. of medicine i'm, go- I'm going into air- medicine airplane medicine, medicine. <laughs> yeah i majored um, in airplane medicine at suny purchase yeah but yeah you know a, a lot of callbacks to to that second episode uh you know they say there they're talking about the socioeconomic health of multiple continents here there's a lot of talk about the markets 
I think that that lack of information and the way that there was never really like a, a straight answer till the end was uh, a very, very gutsy creative choice. But it also, um, you know, it was a, it was a very good rendering of, of how people might react in that situation. You know, Roman and Shiv have a lot uh, a lot of outbursts that they apologize for. You know, they say stuff and they're like, sorry. You know, it, it's sort of a, a a way for us to see them as as normal a little bit. Um, you know, uh, Maddie, you had something here about sort of the unprecedented tenderness between the siblings. Yeah, I think it's um, I think we've seen them show affection towards one another, but we have never seen them really show sort of like childlike love for one another and imagine to be able to imagine them as little kids sort of encountering this world together, you know, and suddenly they all sort of regress a little bit into sort of a more childlike way of relating to each other. Um, when when Ken first walk up, walks up to Shiv to ask, you know, bring her back to put her on the phone, he addresses her as Shivy Honey, which I don't think we've yeah. ever heard him call her Shivy. And I, I could have forgotten. He has, that. but it's usually in kind of like a snarky, like jokey taunting. kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but never in kind of this tender, like right. really caring way. Um, and um yeah it's just the way i i think i think one thing that 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 is so clever about this this way of handling the problem of logan roy's death is that you might think that a a more sort of abrupt or um uh sort of decisive method of death would make for right. better drama would make for you know a bigger gesture in this saga of R logan roy but in fact uh, this sort of long protracted uncertainty of you know uh is he or isn't he yeah is he or isn't he even if it's not really uncertainty even if everybody really knows that he's gone he's still, it's still, still not yeah no he yeah, didn't get slammed by a truck and you know yeah that's it. Yeah. yeah there's there's an element it's, of it's deniability up in the air. yeah right, right and that that actually um is <laughs> leaves the way for uh more immense drama uh than yeah, sort of a sudden and decisive uh end would would provide well, what it does is, you know, it takes the focus off of Logan, who's just an absence, right? Like, his kid's just totally gone, right? And it places this event as a prism through which you see all the characters, right? And the, all of their responses to this event. And we can just go ahead and talk about that scene, that, you know, that call scene where they all get the news. Um, because all of their individual responses are so fascinating and you know the genius of this episode you know the way it's so self-contained is that the viewer stays there with them in those responses in the way you see certain things as we're talking about certain perhaps childlike characteristics or ways that they used to relate to each other suddenly emerging all their kind of defenses and postures fall away and they relate to each other in a totally different way um, but then over the course of the episode, you also see some of that stuff start to reform in ways that are really, really fascinating. Um, so we can run down just like briefly, like formally how they shot this. This has already been like <laughs> poor Mylod has been interviewed about this like a million times. But uh, maybe it's not poor Mylod because it's an amazing achievement. I'm sure he's going to get an Emmy for this or something. Uh, but uh, the, 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 this call scene, which I think is like roughly from when they board the, and is it like, I don't know what to call it. Is it like a ferry or just like a yacht that they're boarding? 
Morgan. It's a yacht, but it's a yacht. yeah. Yeah, but they're going to Connor's wedding, which is at Ellis Island. We talked about what the theme of this <laughs> wedding is. There's like a lot of like a USA theme. They're going to get married yeah. at Ellis Island, so they're like taking a barge. Yeah, it's very just like old school, sort of like the story of America, whatever. Um, but that that but that that scene basically takes from when. Uh, from when the siblings step onto that yacht up to the point where after they tell Connor and they retreat to this like upper deck um, where they're stationed for most of the rest of the episodes um, that was like that was what they were all talking about all the actors have been talking about in interviews is like a, a, a scene that was like 28 pages long which normally you know like a, a page is of a shooting script is like a minute on screen but like succession so dialogue heavy doesn't really map out like that it's closer to like 20 minutes i think in the episode um and so because succession shoots on 35 millimeter film they could only do 10 minutes at a time because that's the size of the reel um so they were having to break it up into chunks and um, Mylod says that, you know, in a conversation with Kieran Culkin, they both give each other credit for this idea. They had the idea to, like, after they had shot all of that stuff in coverage and broken it up, they took a break and choreographed it and then came back and they did the entire thing as, like, a single one-take run-through where they were having to, like, stash cameras around the set so they could pick up and reload and keep go and have a camera going at all times. So it's not like... I was afraid that they were going to do, like we talked about with Marie, like the true detective thing, where it's like a very just like butch kind of like show off. Whoa, I can't believe the camera's running this long kind of thing. Um, but instead, they, 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 they edit. You know, they do have a couple of takes that are a bit longer, but none that are really like remarkably long or anything like that. And they're cutting around and showing different reactions. Um, and Mylod says that uh, a lot of what they shot in that, that last continuous take um, is what ended up uh, in the episode. The, the really one of the really remarkable things I didn't notice until I watched this episode on mute just looking at the camera choices is that there are just like two bartenders in the background of that scene just like making drinks when Roman and Ken initially get the call by the time Shiv comes back I think they're gone but yeah. they, they're just I, I was just like what are they what are those people doing the entire time they're it's just, just yeah another just like way batching cocktails the... I don't know <laughs> they, yeah, I didn't... They, they were they were just bartending and they were overhearing Roman and Kendall but talking. But there's nobody else in that room. Who are they bartending for? <laughs> I like it. I like when there's people like yeah. that just in the background. And you can, they're, they're so invisible to the Roys and uh, even yeah. in like a, a monumental moment like this. Well, it, it adds to that documentary quality, which is so great. And like Milad has talked a lot about how he felt like the camera had to be just like sadistically close to their faces, you know, to capture right. that emotion. Um, you know, and it's so close that there's, it, they're so inside it, like they don't even realize that there are still other things happening around them, even as they're ostensibly in this private space. But then, yeah, it is funny, the implication that at some point the bartender's like, actually, this seems serious and they, they fuck and off out of there. <laughs> It's true that Matthew McFadden was not was in London making these phone calls. Yeah, recording. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what they said. They said that uh, yeah, because McFadden was not with the cast at this time. He was at home with his family in London, so he was up at you know some all odd hours of the night to actually call in. He says that. Um, I think Milo said that's like just something that's standard on the show is whenever somebody has to be on the phone, it's actually that actor. They don't dub in that stuff. It's all like yeah. it's always actually them which is you know, other productions might shortcut that stuff but you know it's another it's a nice example of how like you know uh, this cast you know has their frictions and their differences at times right but like when it comes to like the work they're all admirably like really there for each other which is really cool so just talk about how the the kids like individually respond to the call you know it's interesting how ken 
<laughs> well, he, at first he has that really funny response when when Tom says, "I'm gonna I'm gonna give you to to Logan." And he just like has his hands on his hips and he's just like looking at Roman. It's like, uh, that's all you, dude. I, I don't yeah. know. I don't know what to say. The face he makes there is very funny. Yeah. But by the time <laughs> by the time he gets the the phone, the thing that he keeps coming back to is like he has this wall that he hits with Logan, where he says like, "I can't forgive you." Like that's the the key thing that he mm-hmm. says and you know where it was interesting to me whereas like roman and shiv's responses to the situation seemed to indicate that they had more regrets as we'll talk about like the the manner in which like each of them had like their last conversations with logan like is very like telling and like indicative of like all their issues with him and you can really see how like you know this is <laughs> it's going to be very hard for them to cope with because it really like exacerbates a lot of their issues in, in certain ways but ken seems like he's in a place where like he his issues with his father are like if not settled like he's he's reached a determined place there he's not willing to go back on you know the point of view he's like at the end of season three you remember he told his dad like you're evil you're an evil person yeah. Um, and uh, he had res- he had resigned himself that he wasn't going to beat him in a straight-ahead battle for the company. Um, but even in that moment, he says, you know, like, I love you, but I can't forgive you, which I, I thought was so striking and is certainly, I think, something that's going to be important going forward for Ken. Yeah, and him saying, I can't forgive you, a contrast to Shiv saying, you know, it's okay, Daddy, it's okay, um, almost, you know, she, you know, she must have been thinking about the night before <laughs> karaoke. You know, you always think about the last thing you said to somebody before they died and uh yeah you know shivy as the as the baby girl and pinky and stuff and his favorite um yeah she she there was a major regression to a childlike state here her her voice got high-pitched like when they first hand her the phone she's like hi hi oh my god like, like hi like she she really turns into a little girl and there's this shot um i mean we know sarah snook has incredible facial expressions micro expressions but when her and uh candle are going to get connor and they're holding hands and then they they pan up to their faces and she she does something with like her her mouth and her chin um in this to this like very sad frown where she she really she looked like a little girl and it's just it's so impressive how she does that um and you know we it, it it's fitting with the you know first two episodes what we've been talking about that there's this uh this childlike regression i i, I can't even imagine um you know well <laughs> we are going to imagine what each sibling is going to you know go through as they process this and as they uh you know move through the world without dad i don't think um they have any idea how to do that and um you know it's a little bit different for kendall he seems to be seeing this as an opening um, but, uh, you know, and I think Shiv will get there, but it's going to be really hard for Roman, I would say. Um, he's going to struggle a lot, especially considering the circumstances of that day where he got the word to fire Jerry. He did it. He felt awful about it. Um, left that voicemail. If he had just waited a little while on firing Jerry or waited till the end of the day, waited a few minutes um it would have avoided all of that um because you know that kind of functionally like it it seems like it ended their relationship jerry was very hurt and at the end when he was grieving she basically just left the room um very very hard for your heart not to break for roman here yeah i mean it's an incredible timing right like again the way that this episode constructs this event to seem so 
random and sudden because it really places the audience again in that same position of the kids as really just being, you know, uh, wrong-footed by this and you know not seeing it coming at all. The way that they're able to r- kind of rig the engineer the timing in such a way that it comes at like one of the worst possible times it could have come for Roman, who is so anxious. Um, about disappointing his father, anxious about his status in his life, you know, right as he has left him this angry voicemail, you know, and which, you know, Maddie, as you were saying, I think was poised to maybe be kind of a turning point for them. Yeah, I get the sense that Roman was grieving. I mean, his, his part of his denial and his um, sort of horror is at the loss of his dad, but maybe more sort of in the immediate present. I think he realized that um he had just managed to express himself to his father and would never get the resolution of being heard and being sort of responded to by his father and that sort of uh loss of the opportunity in in a way very similar to what connor says you know i never had the chance to i never had the chance to make him make him proud proud of of me yes thank you uh, and it's kind of the same, never really had a chance to be an adult in relation to his father. Um, and just when he was about to. Yeah, that voicemail was interesting. I mean, he doesn't talk to his dad like that. And uh, he identified the fact that it was a really shitty thing that his dad asked him to do. And he feels awful about it. And he expressed his emotion. And now he's going to be haunted by it for the rest of his life. I mean, amazing acting from Culkin in that voicemail scene. That was one of the things they highlighted in the teaser for this episode um, was that, you know, that there was going to be this impasse between Roman and Logan, you know, the way he delivers that. He chokes out that line. It's like, well, you can't keep expecting me to to bend over for you. Um, It's fantastic. And I mean, yeah, he won't ever get the resolution of that. uh, But even worse, it feels like, you know, the ultimate karmic punishment right you know he's had this he's had this anxiety about talking back to his dad about contradicting his father his entire life he does it and he immediately dies right so much so that that he that he sort of has that subconscious fear that's like did i kill my dad by speaking back was it was it did he check his was he checking his messages does anybody know was it such a taboo that he that it literally killed my dad right i think if you're if you're a conflict avoidant person it probably um is born in some way out of your relationship with your parents and if you uh are going to all this trouble to avoid conflict it's because you harbor some anxiety that if you do engage in anger or you know an angry encounter that it's going to be cataclysmic and disaster will strike and it's going to you know it just be be um sort of the end of the world and for roman he stood up for himself and then lost his father and it's just kind of it's just extra heartbreaking you know knowing that he's conflict avoidant yeah and that they've been uh needling him about that for the you know first two episodes you know shiv is keeps saying to him well you don't like conflict and you're conflict avoidant and uh (laughs) it's it's just utterly tragic um well and and the thing that roman says where he's you know he he doesn't say i love you to logan when he's on the phone with him at the end he's he says all this stuff that's like again so indicative of his issues where he says you know dad you're a monster and you're gonna win which is you know obviously the fact that that is what comes to mind is so telling about the way he views his dad as i I think in season three he called him moby dick he's gonna take us all down with a thousand harpoons in his back he's still thinking of his dad as this great monster this great white whale who's unbeatable even in that moment but i mean that was one of the things that hit me personally 
personally hardest in this episode was him realizing, oh, I didn't say I love you later, and almost wondering, can you put me back by his ear, knowing at that point that he's uh, likely dead. You know, just uh, the, the, anxi- the anxiety, <laughs> the specific thing about not handling that situation correctly, even though, like, no reasonable person can expect you to, like, have the perfect thing to say in that moment or whatever right, right? like and it's the voicemail did not kill him but yeah yeah it's so <laughs> yeah. understandable that you're gonna forget something like that but that's something that i was like i really felt that right that like in those moments you you think back it's like i handled this pivotal moment in my life it came and i wasn't ready you know that can right. that, that is a real regret that people face right well yeah. just the way he, on the rewatch i sort of registered more painfully how after he says you know you're a good dad you did a good job that he just sort of shuts down and is like i can't do that I and and hands the phone off to Kendall and sort of backs away yeah. slowly and it's just truly like he he was so unable to process that he might be saying goodbye to his dad that he couldn't like access his own feelings towards his dad yeah no I mean he, he just can't do it he, he hasn't been able to do it uh, except that you know dad is gonna die and it's, it's a very 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 difficult subject for him throughout the series um, but yeah, like just these, these extremely like understandable, normal reactions, um, you know, Kendall's is to fight, right? Well, I thought that, I thought just going on that thread of, you know, how these very human, seemingly spontaneous reactions, the writers are able to, you know, tailor them in such a way that they are extreme, they do feel impulsive, but they also feel so deep-rooted in who these characters are. And there are things that are human and spontaneous and come from the characters, and there are things that are just, like, utterly cruel and just sort of, like, beautifully crafted twists of fate. The idea that, you know, Shiv, in particular, is the first one to get the call from Tom, but because, you know, she and Tom are on the out, she doesn't pick up. She doesn't pick up twice, in fact. And right. because of that, she is she finds out after her brothers. She misses, if there even was an opportunity for Logan to hear any of them, she likely misses it, which is so fitting for the second order status that she always felt she had in his life, despite the feeling that, you know, she was his pinky, she was his favorite because she was his only daughter. She was also always very conscious that that, meant that she was boxed out of things like the business there were things in logan's life that she would never be privy to and in fact as you know she sort of moved closer to him and closer to the business he began to react more angrily and more contemptuously of her and like in the past few years of their relationship she had borne the brunt of his sexism and his contempt like for the first time you sense in their entire relationship and so the fact that she feels like finally frozen out of that last moment is just such a great cruel twist that I thought was was perfect. And I thought Snook was, you know, this episode is full of just great standout bits of acting from the whole ensemble. But, you know, Snook is the one I would probably highlight um, as my favorite performance in this episode. And, you know, to talk about just like what makes her so good and why she's so good at playing this character in particular is she has this very like technically controlled ability you can kind of see this like you know this is a a bit speculative but like you can kind of see this when you see snook doing like publicity like she's extremely warm but you always always get the sense that she has a very firm wall between her public self and her private self and there are things that she will give up and there are things that she absolutely will not um and obviously that's so key to who shiv is right this this person who places such 
like priority on being able to control herself, control her emotions, and like the signature sort of shiv look is or the, is that like narrowing of the eyes, right? Like in the at the end of season three, where she's she's pulling the shades down, right? She's pulling the shades down over something she doesn't want to show. She can just flip all these layers into place like an optometrist's lenses or something. And my favorite shot in this episode, my favorite moment of acting, is just when Kendall is telling her the news. And you see it hit her all at once. And she's kind of like smiling, like nervously laughing. She can't believe it. And then all of a sudden it hits her and her eyebrows just like blow clear up to the top of her head. You know, it's a fantastic piece of acting. Some of her line deliveries really just, um, there's like a musicality to them that I think makes her sort of the, the, it just, it's almost operatic. Uh, It sort of endows her with this, this grandeur dramatically that um yeah i think is sort of at both represents what they're all going through but also to shiv as a person and yeah i can see why the the conversation online has been very heavily (laughs) this is snook's year for the emmy might put her in the lead category role but yeah i mean she she was excellent i mean even just delivering that speech at the end i mean we can we can talk about that later but um do we want to talk about connor and willa or do we want to go back up brendan to um well we can talk about connor because that naturally ties into like the end of this scene and you know his response to the news as well i mean ruck is is great you know in that in that bit where he he says later in that scene with willa he says you know my dad's dead and i feel old uh, and Ruck does look like really old in that scene where he learns the news. Like it really just like drains a lot out of him. But he has that. He has the yeah. He has that great first reaction where he says, "Oh man, you know, he never even liked me." He never me. even liked me. And then his second thing he says, he corrects it to, "I mean, I never got the chance to make him proud of me." And we were talking last episode about you know Connor's declaration that you know. You know, the great thing about having a family doesn't love you is that you learn to live without it. And, you know, I don't need love, et cetera, et cetera, as this sort of like psychological insight that he has. But you also feel, you know, in that moment, it's like, well, okay, this is why this guy is running for president is because he needed to make the world's biggest gesture to get his dad's attention. Um, So I'm kind of curious as to where his like presidential bid goes from here. Like, is his heart still in it? You know, if his if if it's not going to get his dad's attention. I mean, yeah, there's that that's that separate scene between him and Willow that I really loved. uh, Yeah, that scene really um i found very touching i found very and and you know just kind of kind of heartwarming in a way that this show almost never is uh this this show very very rarely allows you to feel heartwarmed um and yet somehow this sort of real like honesty and emotional intimacy that emerges between these two characters who have seemingly sort of just been lying to themselves and each other um in every way up to this point i just it really got to me i i you know i i willa never says that she loves connor um but she talks about being happy she says she's happy and she really genuinely seems to be sincere uh in saying that and connor can kind of accept that he can kind of hear it and instead of um his vanity rising up and and objecting and and feeling hurt that she can't say that she loves him he sort of appreciates that she is honest with him about the fact that money and safety are an element of her you know sort of um attachment to him and to to her desire to be with him but 
ultimately she's living a life that she's happy in and the way in which she delivers this to him is just so full of affection and warmth and the way she sits with him while he's going through this turmoil is just like I, I found very genuinely sweet and and to suggesting that there was real uh affection there i agree i thought it was it was very realistic but it was maybe their most like emotionally honest scene and maybe my favorite connor willis scene and, and justine did such a good job um you know at 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 conveying this to connor with a lot of compassion but also you know being honest yes like the the money element here is and, and safety it matters to me but um the the comment that she is happy and and the smile uh, and a little joke that she cracks and, and their faces are very close together um it was a really really tender warm scene like you said and then seeing them go through the ceremony with just a few people in the crowd um it was so sweet it was so touching and like i'm <laughs> i don't know what's gonna happen to connor the rest of the season i'm almost hoping that this is like our one succession happy ending or something that we can fantasize about connor and willa going off into the sun and you know maybe building a life together and nothing horrible happens to them but um you know we'll see but it it it, um you know the connor willa relationship has always been kind of a little bit confusing to me and i think that that scene really you know it, it it made it make sense um the way that she you know finally was just honest about what this all is you know and that they they can make it work you know people make different arrangements work and for her you know this is what she wants yeah i mean connor and willa within you know the reality of this show they often are a bit cartoonish right like we've had real humanizing moments for connor this season especially in this episode in the last episode i think the the dynamic in this scene that is very um illuminating about their relationship is that they they may lie to themselves but they don't lie to each other right like i don't know that it's ultimately true that like either of them you know is is having their needs fully met by this relationship right but they think they are you know this is this is the best that they know how it's okay right you know it's okay like it's kind of like what (laughs) the boys said even though it's it's stupid they said you know you're not going to do better than willa like and and maybe for her like she's had terrible relationships with shitty guys who treated her awfully and she maybe she grew up in a environment where she didn't have material security and for her this is this is what matters and that's okay that very- you know the comment from from her mom at the beginning of the episode of he'll take care of you you know i think spoke to something that maybe about her childhood we don't know anything about it but it, it's nice you know for some people that is what they want I mean, yeah, I mean, one of the things about this being a wedding episode, right, is that, like, all the other marriages on this show are just, like, horrendous psychosexual nightmares, right? You know, or there's, or it's, like, Caroline and, and Peter Munyon, right, which is just, like, a, a brutally, you know, joyless uh, arrangement. But with Connor and Willa, you know, it's, like, you could do a lot worse, right? If, if the show's view of marriage is that in, world, in this world it's always a compromise or an arrangement of some sort, this is a pretty good one as far as those go. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> especially if we're just looking in the world of the show, it's like, I think first season we said that healthiest relationship was was Marsha Logan, but um, yeah, it would be kind of an interesting full circle if uh, by the end of the show this is this is the healthiest relationship because it was it was weird there for a little while. 
Maybe the honesty of a relationship where they can sort of acknowledge the transactional element is the healthiest that any Roy could ask for. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I I don't think any of the rest of them are able to see that, Um, you know, and, and, you know, even if we look back two episodes to Shiv and Tom's, you know, fake postmortem, um, and just her complete inability to be honest with herself about how she's feeling and, and, uh, just the utter resistance to go into it. Yeah, I, I think there's an honesty here between Will and Connor that you know it's it's not I you know it's not the most uh, fairy tale type of thing arrangement, but you know what? Like life is complicated and different things work for different people. Yeah, it's real quick. Just on that shot, that very brief shot of their actual wedding at the end, where it looks like the looks like they have their wedding party with them and a couple of witnesses. I'm assuming it's maybe like Willow's mom or Willow's family. Um, do we think yeah, that they probably. do we think that they canceled the wedding and sent everybody else home, or is the implication that everybody just bailed when they heard about Logan? I yeah, of- I don't know. Like. Go ahead, Maddie. Sorry. No, I, I, I don't know really either. I, I sort of thought maybe a large part of it was that everybody there worked for Logan and had to run off and do things to address the crisis. <laughs> uh, they were literally always star employees. Always star employees. But that's maybe a little, uh, that's, that's probably not quite right. There's no point at the wedding where it's like everybody knows and everybody's talking about it. We don't get a, a scene like that. So, but, so I, I was wondering, do people know that he died? But, um, that, that would be my guess is just like people found out he died and they were kind of just like, all right, like I'm, I imagine this is canceled. I, I don't know if they made an announcement. Yeah, that, it it probably makes more sense <laughs> that they called things off. I mean, Maddie, you pointed out in which this is a kind of an inversion of what Connor suggested for their wedding, right? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, in the last episode, oh, right. in, in his sort of <laughs> campaign panic, he was like, what if we... What if we just do the wedding as a big flashy spectacle and it'll, you know, it'll be all eyes on us. Uh, and Will is kind of like, I don't, that's not what I want for my wedding. Um, and of course that's sort of wrapped up in their whole, the, the whole conflict between them in the last episode. But uh, in the end they got a, a, a wedding that was um, very intimate and, and very um, sincere. It was a, a nice wedding in, in Willow's terms. Uh, what, nice. one, la- one last thing about one last thing about Connor. We got to move on to some other things in this episode. But one last thing about Connor. I gotta say the biggest laugh in this episode for me, although it's a very painful laugh, is again how beautifully that entire call scene is orchestrated. So that when Roman and Ken are talking to Tom you are immediately conscious of go get Shiv, go get Shiv, go get Shiv, where's Shiv, she's missing this. Like, that's the thing that's on your mind. That's the, like, ticking clock suspense that's built into that scene. And that is calibrated so perfectly that you don't realize until they all realize it at once that they forgot to tell Connor. Uh, I laughed so hard at that. Like, it was, it was a painful laugh, but it's it's such it's such a great moment of just like, oh, we forgot Connor again. Well, and he's right there. He's, like, right outside the door yelling about the cake being inadequate. And so that's what brings yeah. dogs their memories. Kinda. And there's posters in the room of him and Will. <laughs> like, yeah, their engagement like, literally right over their shoulder. Oh, my God. <laughs> it just occurred to me that maybe one of the reasons why people left um, before the ceremony was that it was delayed. Like, maybe they were, maybe they were like it was about to happen and then suddenly it couldn't happen and everything shut down and then two hours well later, they had to 
they had to take the kids back, right? Because yeah. they, 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 they were on the boat and the boat started moving and they were like, what the fuck? We're moving. Right. So maybe, yeah. So maybe well, that's just, what happened. Maybe well, it was them just, they killed off, so much time. Yeah. You see them getting off the yacht and boarding another another ferry. Or Bo- right, right. Some, another ferry takes them. But <laughs> but it, yeah, that all could have, yeah, that, 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 that definitely all could have uh, delayed it quite a bit. And uh, maybe... They just <laughs> brought people back. Yeah, this is, um, this is the, the, the logistical uh, mindset of somebody beginning to plan a wedding. <laughs> so, poor Connor. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> well, well, make sure you, uh, you know, have all your, uh, you know, cake situation squared away yeah. before I'll, the day of. <laughs> I'll make sure my, that my my cake is not like a traumatic trigger for me. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure that how that. Sad. Yeah, how did he miss that in the planning process? I know. How did they miss that? The poor thing, Victorian Victorian sponge. She ate it for a week by himself when his poor mom was sent away. Poor so Connor. awful. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's out out of character for typically very event planning obsessed Connor. <laughs> that was the thing I was disappointed. This episode I was like, I thought we were going to get a lot more of like Connor's fixation on event planning. You know, we get a little bit of that, but I was like, you know, but obviously the 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 main event kind of like takes focus away from that. Uh, um, yeah, would have been fun, but yeah, you know, other things had to happen. So, I mean, to, to kind of circle back to the other things that happen in this episode, I mean, there's this great kind of like thematic container that the episode takes place in, which is this idea that the characters are at sea again. Like Gabby already alluded to how, you know, everybody's in a plane or they're on a boat and like nobody's actually like on solid footing the entire episode and mm-hmm. they're all and as usual these characters are in transit somewhere they're in a in a space that's not like a real space it's a it's it's a transitional space in a sense even though these are these are very nice boats and planes but i mean the the symbolic weight of being at sea has a particular sort of meaning and import for this show right like the last time all these characters were on a boat together they were talking about a blood sacrifice right and it was in the context of this scandal at the family company that has to do with assaults and deaths that take place on cruise ships and bodies disappearing overboard like there's a lot that's like freighted in there and in a way it's kind Mm -hmm. of a fight but the episode is very intentionally layering all that in because uh the other thread that is laid out at the start of this episode is Logan firing Jerry and firing Sid Peach. So there's throwing the women overboard again, as they talked about in the season yes. two finale. It's like, should we perhaps haven't we killed enough women as, as Roman said, right. uh, joking, but not joking. Uh, so there's that thread there of, you know, women going overboard. And then when you think about the death of Logan Roy, um, Gabby, the th- I don't know if this is actually a serious theory or if you were just joking about this, but the thing that we floated, the, the <laughs> idea that if we wanted something really operatic to happen to Logan, a real-life parallel we would look at is the death of uh, publishing magnate Robert Maxwell, who famously uh, drowned off the side of his yacht, the Lady Ghislaine. Drowned, quote-unquote. Yeah, you know, <laughs> listen, there's, 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 there's other podcasts you can listen to if you want more more for that story. Um, but yeah, I, 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 liked the, I really loved the idea that, you know, potentially that the show was building to Logan getting Maxwell. That doesn't quite happen, but I think it's very intentionally in the text of this episode for people who know about that. And in fact, listening to the official HBO podcast this week, I was not surprised to hear Armstrong explicitly 
really reference Maxwell, specifically in regards mm. to the statement that his daughter Ghislaine gave in the Canary Islands where the yacht right. with his body returned to port. And obviously, when we talk about Robert Maxwell and Ghislaine Maxwell, all of that family history is now very much colored by Ghislaine's career as a sex trafficker, which she's, she's currently in prison for. So still more about, you know, bodies and, you know, sex crimes and women being disappeared. All that very yeah. disturbing stuff kind of floats underneath it's the surface there. of this episode. And there is a sense of perhaps some kind of like karmic weight or retribution that's happening too yeah i mean i was sort of joking about logan falling over the boat even though <laughs> i thought it would be really funny and <laughs> sort of poetic um given the cruises scandal but i mean i don't think succession would really do a move like that um but the robert maxwell stuff is relevant it's a person that uh, jesse armstrong and and other producers of the show have brought up before i know everyone gets so caught up on the Murdochs, um, but we forget that the Roys are fictional. They are not the Murdochs. Um, it's inspiration is yes drawn from fa- families like the Murdochs, but a whole bunch of other families. Um, and the Maxwells are a really, really interesting family and an interesting correlate. Robert Maxwell was actually a, a you know a rival of Rupert Murdochs. Um, and yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, he got brought up on, on the official pod. And, um, you know, there is there's a lot there that um, can be can be drawn comparing Logan to Robert Maxwell and just, the, the, you know, just the general <laughs> whole ecosystem of, of sex crimes that his daughter is now implicated for. Yeah, it, it, it all makes sense that this was happening you know on at sea essentially i mean there the plane is obviously over the sea at some point it seems like it takes them some time to get back um they're leaving from new york it's it's over the sea the kids are at sea um yeah again just uh you know common succession motif but you know we keep talking about real world implications and, and what's going to happen at the end of the series. We know that, you know, there's been all this internecine family fighting, but again, like in terms of the Roy's impact on the world, and that's something that Jesse Armstrong has always been emphatic about that, that this dysfunction becomes part of the world's dysfunction because of how powerful they are. And we haven't really seen true harm done in a couple seasons. And uh, it will be interesting to see, how they wrap that up now that Logan's dead. Um, you know, the the original sinner is dead. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it would be weird if they don't, if there's not something else. I don't know what it's going to be. Something else that, um, you know, it generalizes to the world and, and um, not just the family. Yeah, I mean, this episode is a fantastic test case or, you know, sort of proof of concept for the show's dramatic strength and its dramatic, it's a dramaturgical, as we might say, uh, strength. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, talking about the Maxwell stuff, depending on how explicitly you think it's layered into the show, what it reminds me of in part is... Um, you know, with us sort of goofily hypothesizing that someone was literally going to shove Logan off a boat at some point. It reminds me of, I think it was season six of Mad Men when there's a, there was a scene where, you know, Megan is wearing this like star 
emblazoned t-shirt that's very similar to one that Sharon Tate was photographed at at some point. And so that led to all the speculation that like, oh, is Megan going to be murdered in like oh, the Manson killings at some point? Like, murdered. Now the show is like not obvious. I thought you to- were going to talk about Pete's mom going overboard. <laughs> Well, there's a lot of that, too. Yes, uh, of course, lest we forget, in Mad Men, both of Pete's parents are canonically eaten by sharks. Um, but oh, I yeah, mean, the airplane, too. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, but the, obviously, you know, in Mad Men, you know, they, they, they weren't, you know, explicitly foreshadowing that. But what it is is it's part of, like, the fabric of the period and the fabric of these characters' lives and these historical illusions are there to sort of like build in this atmosphere. And, you know, Succession does that very well when you want to look for it. And just thinking about how, again, how specific and mundane and human the sort of way that the characters process the news of Logan's death in this episode is, you know, thinking again about what we've talked about in previous weeks is the idea of how insularity functions on the show. And the show is so good at these very contained premises that allow these scenes to build and burn off their own momentum. And at its best, when even when you never leave the room that these characters are in, the ideas that are contained in there reverberate outside their like very hermetically sealed world of privilege. And they echo into our own reality as viewers. We saw this in Hunting and Safe Room and Mass in Time of War. And in this episode where the action is as contained as it gets and it's mostly limited to these, you know, these two locations, to the boat and the plane, the crisis is almost entirely personal and intimate and emotional. Logan's death is going to have these real world reverberations, but we don't feel them, not yet. Um, and what happens in the immediate aftermath is that the siblings' way of relating to each other changes because of the shock they feel. You know, they use nicknames for each other. They hold hands, embrace each other. And the way that Logan has taught them to relate to each other through power and manipulation and abuse, it completely falls away. And then what we start to see happen in this episode, and what I presume is going to continue to happen in the subsequent episodes, is that as they adjust to this shock, the old habits start to reform themselves. You know, like we see it just a bit, but we see it, you know, in particular with Ken as he starts steering the siblings towards this path that will allow them to reclaim the company. You see him start to plot a bit, right? And it makes me think about that that episode's metaphorical, it's metonymic, it's, you know, it's sort of synecdoche in which Logan's death could be any number of real-world calamities or crises in which ordinary and insufficient customs and practices and routines fall away and people respond in the moment uh, to need, to actual human need. And eventually, over time, the system that had been briefly shocked out of complacence and ruptured, it starts to reassert itself. Yeah, I mean, the death of Logan reminds me of in a geopolitical sense like when a totalitarian dictator dies in some country with very weak institutions these huge power vacuum opens up and um you know factional war often breaks out and i think that's what's going to happen here i mean i always expected we get we would get logan's death later on like i said at the beginning of the episode but now i can see what a smart decision it was to give us several more hours with um, the leftovers, so to speak, coping, you know, personally and professionally in this aftermath. Um, you could see the shifts kind of, yeah, like Brendan was saying, start to start to take take form um, in terms of jockeying for position and 
you know, this is a huge change for the show. There's going to be so much to sift through in the aftermath of Logan's death. There's so many people vying for power. Um, you know, and maybe this was the response to the feeling that uh, of repetition that some critics have made. I mean, like, you know, how is that for the same thing over and over again? We are now in completely uncharted waters um, with the absence of Logan Roy. So, um, you know, I think it's it was a tough choice. I'm sure it was very, very difficult for them, but I think it's going to be absolutely fascinating. And I think that brings us to, um, you know, with what was going on in the air and, and the C-suite and who was on the plane. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The, uh, the death of Stalin subplot <laughs> of this episode. There was a, there was a, there was a part when, when they first got back to the plane stuff, I was like, Oh, is, are we going to be doing this for the rest of the show where it's like, you know, it's just everybody sort of like, you know, covering their own ass and it's very farcical as we've seen in the past. Um, but it's, it, it is and it isn't in very interesting ways. You know, we, the first sort of bits of, you know, things that we see on the plane is you see Tom and, you know, McFadden doing amazing phone acting in this episode, you know, where he's trying to communicate the situation, trying to relay a lot of information at once. You see glimpses of Frank and Carl very shaken by what's going on. But then when we start to actually see what's happening on the plane, and how the C-suite are adjusting to this once the initial shock has worn off, uh, the responses are quite interesting. And I guess the place to start would be with uh, Dagmara Dominchik as Carolina, who probably has her best episode ever, or like this is the most prominent that she's ever been on the show. And we were talking a little bit, you know, the other day, Gabby, about how Carolina is one of these characters who. I think <laughs> viewers are very fascinated by her because she's played by a very charismatic performer, uh, but the show does not really give us a lot to go on in terms of like who she is, what kind of person she is outside of like her professional role on the show. But she has been established, I think, as one of the more, if not the most competent professionals working at this company. And her response to this incident is, is very interesting because she basically is completely unfazed by it like we don't see her initial reaction to the shock of logan dying but when we when we catch up with her she's taking notes and she's like kind of starting to take control she begins assembling a list of contacts people they need to let know about the death matt's in the board jerry potus um and you know i i think that the way that the c-suite starts to work with her is in a sense, you know, the siblings get very angry at them because they're like, oh, you guys are just, you know, trying to jockey for position. You're doing politicking, etc. Um, but, you know, all the way back in episode, you know, 102 in Shit Show, Carolina was, re you know, referring to like the fiduciary duty that they have to let people know about this. And they are right about that. It is it is something that they have to do, you know. And so Carolina just has her priorities kind of firmly in place and she's just ticking on down the list. Yeah, I mean, she is nothing if not extremely competent. And um, yeah, I mean, we're not afforded a lot of, of information about her. You know, we're not afforded a ton of information about people who work for Logan, but some. But uh, with Carolina, we really get not much at all. Um, I would say, I don't think we've learned anything about her biographically. But I was super impressed with Dagmara here. She's really, really good. Um, and it was smart to have her here in a key moment like this. I mean, some people were like, you know, again, it's like, well, she was so cold, but what fondness does Carolina have f towards Logan aside from the fact that she takes 
a big paycheck from him for something that she's good at. Like she doesn't need to have regard for him. She was there at Bor on the floor. She knows who he is. And uh, I wouldn't have expected her to act any other way. And Logan wouldn't have wanted her to act any other way either. He wanted her, he would have wanted her to do her job. Um, she was also pissed about the news that Tom and Logan had delivered about Jerry because I do see Carolina and Jerry as having uh, sort of a bond as like the two most senior women in the company throughout the series. We've sort of seen them together, um, you know, sort of chatting, whispering, whatever. Ha- uh, uh, they've had each other's backs in, in very subtle ways in the dialogue. Um, and when Tom and Logan deliver this news to Carolina, she makes a face like, are you fucking kidding me? And um, so I think that also colored the fact that, you know, she wasn't feeling particularly warm towards Logan in that moment. But, um, you know, there are th- three people on this plane who have, I would say, pretty big emotional stakes here. Um, Carl, God bless him. He's been with the company 20 plus years, but we don't really get a sense that he and Logan were particularly close or that he has a relationship with the kids. Um, Frank, on the other hand, is a different story. He is the one who tells Tom initially to put the kids on the phone to Logan's ear. He also has to field Kendall's childish phone call where he, um, you know, is asking to talk to the pilot. Um, Frank and Kendall have drifted a little bit over the series, but if you recall season one, they were quite close and we've talked a lot about the ways in which he's kind of been like a surrogate father to Ken throughout the series. He's heavily applied to be Ken, heavily implied to be Kendall's godfather. Um, Frank helped Ken with the, the vote of no confidence. He's always been Ken's line, so to speak, to Waystar when he's on the outs with them. You know, and Frank is a pretty even-keeled guy. I wasn't surprised that he was able to balance all of this with a lot of integrity. But, you know, there were signs of frustration and upset, too. There was a moment where um, when Kendall asks him to speak to the pilot, he kind of bangs on a panel on the plane. And he's, you know, he's frustrated. and He's upset. I mean, he's losing a friend of 40 years here also. Um, and he's not really afforded much interiority or um, ability to, to feel. Um, you know, he, he has to take care of Ken. He has to help Carolina <laughs> uh, field uh, Carrie's weirdness. So I think it was important that Frank was on that plane. I think Frank is a super important character to the show. Uh, he has, for better or worse, had a very close relationship with Logan and um, has been around for 40 years, meaning that all three of the young Roys, um, he has seen them grow up from, from birth. So um, Logan fired yeah. him in season one, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> after after the coup, everybody's relationship with with Logan is, to say the least, complicated. I mean, thinking about what we teased out with a thread of misogyny running through this episode, a big reason I think that Carolina is so businesslike in this episode and not phased by Logan's death is not only you know being you know perhaps a bit pissed on Jerry's behalf about the news she's just gotten but also the real sense that it's like you know they're they're culling the women right like she's going to be next overboard you know she knows how tenuous her position is and Logan has snapped at her before like she's born she's born some of that herself um Maddie I wondered I wondered if you would talk about Tom a little bit who you know has a very tricky role in trying to both fit in with the C-suite here but he also has to handle this very tough emotional role of talking the kids through this, you know, at long distance, no less. Yeah, I think it really um, comes into the foreground here that Tom is in a particularly 
he's in a unique position. He is both sort of a colleague of Logan's, you know, a, a, a C-suite presence, uh, but he's also family, but he's also not quite family. He's not related by blood. He's related by marriage. And, you know, I think it's sort of implied that he met Shiv through the business, right? He, he, uh, wasn't I, I don't know I don't think he I think so like he I think he was coming up in the business I don't think he was just yes. sort of planted in he a wasn't an position. executive yeah yeah right um and so you, you sort of suddenly he is in a position where he's the one on the plane who can need you know can speak to his wife and brother-in-law as a member of the family and he does it really beautifully I think he kind of uh is very graceful in the way that he um, sort of is respectful to everybody and compassionate to everybody and also clear headed and, and sort of knows what to say to which person and and, um, and then uh, interestingly I thought that when Ken kind of shifted out of family mode and out of this sort of immediate instinctive sort of uh, emotional response and started to want to talk about sort of more grown-up matters like you you could see Kendall kind of put on his grown-up face and go and start asking about um you know speaking with the pilot and talking to the doctors via Jess and uh and so at that point he pivots away from Tom and towards Frank who I think sort of maybe represents to him the more business side of things as opposed to the family um sort of father-son son-in-law relationships yeah I, I found Tom's behavior and um, McFadden's performance just genuinely I mean it's, that might have been my favorite performance in the show I haven't fully waited out but my gut oh wow my gut says yeah no he was great I mean some people thought that his communication with the kids felt cold but like I could not that's disagree crazy any, no anymore that's it's it's I, I don't know maybe these are 17 year olds who just haven't had enough life experience but it's not like they were rushing through midtown in a car to get Logan to a hospital they were in the air and nothing could be done so a calm presence on the phone was was absolutely the right thing for the kids and it was it was a in a way, a sacrifice on Tom's part because he was feeling heavy emotions too. Um, you know, he's very, very patient. Who knows what he had to do on that plane prior to us seeing him? You know, I kind of recall retired janitors of Idaho and, um, you know, Tom taking care of Logan in the bathroom, Tom taking care of Logan when he's kind of in his demented state and and, and knowing the right things to say, um, you know, and, and a reminder that, you know, Tom for all his his faults he uh you know has this kind of capacity to be a human in situations like this uh because he you know grew up in a normal family and um keeping composure in that kind of situation uh, extremely difficult you know i already talked about how hard it is to be on a plane when something like this is happening um and yeah i just um you know i i, I can't imagine him you know, having a, a, a more uh, a f compassionate approach. I, I have um, been around, you know, I've, I've, I've lost people and I've, I've, you know, been around people who are grieving and, um, you know, a, a lot of the times you get news delivered to you by people who are hysterical. It doesn't help the situation. I think Tom's um, calm and composure here was really a mercy for everybody. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I cannot see how people interpreted anything that he did here as negative. 
You noted that he um, finally sort of lets lets himself express he cries himself a little bit. Yeah, when he when he's talking <laughs> to Greg, and it's both. Yeah, you see him. You see him break down. You see him be emotional, but he also lashes out at Greg. He's kind of mean to Greg, and that's when his voice hardens and he gets Deserved. cynical. And it's almost like he's putting on a show of being this cynical angler. But then ultimately, when he tells Greg, you know, make sure they know I was with him. That felt to me more like sort of a heartfelt, like I was there, like I, I, I want to bear witness to this rather than yeah. sort of that that veneer of, of political angling. I can see it both ways. But yeah, I, I do think there's something about Tom. There's a fondness for Logan he really had as a father figure um, that we saw start to really crystallize last season and he, and, he um, said he was my protector that was the line that um yeah oh my god like, both, like what yeah like <laughs> he wasn't but <laughs> he wasn't but maybe he was the best the best alternative yeah well yeah, yeah. i mean <laughs> tom's a very far away from home right you know he's not in the middle yeah. he's not in kansas anymore whatever where was his home st paul st paul in the midwest <laughs> thank you he his wife is certainly not his protector as he's seen before you know and so as fraught and scary as his relationship with logan has been yeah i mean it is it it, it is reasonable that he would he would come to feel in some way that he had you know he had he had he had purchased himself you know some loyalty from logan and it's quite it is destabilizing and isolating to feel that suddenly stripped away from himself again. And, you know, Maddie, you, you talked about that very unique role that Tom occupies of being in the family, but not of it. And the way that he kind of sits on that plane very tentatively, being very much perched between the family that he would like to belong to, but doesn't, and the C-suite who are not quite totally confident of him either because his, his ascension to the to the very upper ranks has been rather rapid and recent. Um, yeah. But, uh, he's, he's, he's in a very unsure position. And Logan loves him yeah. because he's family, but it's not unconditional love. It's very much conditional on... And now that he's, you know, on the right. brink of not being family anymore legally, it's even more conditional on him being good at his job and being, you know... Smart. What did you guys make of uh, Tom asking Greg to go to the office and delete a folder called logistics? Yes, uh, because uh, <laughs> because what, what was what was Greg's classified folder called? It was called receipts, right? Uh, <laughs> and Tom made fun of him for it. And Tom's is called logistics. <laughs> and the implication, I think, because he's, he also tells Greg to stick to Sid like a limpet. Uh, the implication is yeah. that has this, this has something to do with whatever he and Logan have been cooking up to uh, to kill Sid and uh, for Tom to take over ATN. So this is great news for the uh, I don't know what you would call us Berliners, the the people who are really excited to see more of GD Berlin on the show. Uh, hopefully we'll get like a, a, a hopefully we, we we this we haven't actually seen the last of her and we will get uh, at least another great scene between her and Tom facing off for the ATN crown. Um, and uh, because. Because I think that that plot point was alighted for some people. I think it is pretty clearly spelled out in the episode that Greg is the one who leaks the news of Logan's de of Logan's death. Because Tom says it's total lockdown, but then in the next breath he's like, "But people should know that that I was with him, right?" And the and the and it's also established uh, briefly in the dialogue that the the woman that Greg is talking to is a journalist. So that's it's very right, it's very so clearly implied that he leaks it. Could have spread like wildfire like that, yeah. So, so finally, uh, the third person on the plane who I would say has, you know, some emotional stakes here is uh, Carrie. Wow. This was 
fucking crazy. I mean, not to say exactly what she said when she walks out of Logan <laughs> getting pumped on, but um, this was so impressive. You know, like early on in the cold open, she's in the car looking like his little wifey. Like she's so confident. Um, you know, we don't really ever see her rattled. Um, and it, it, it's it's also mentioned by Shiv via Tom that Carrie talked to Logan quite a bit. And my assumption is that she probably saw Logan die um, or she was probably with him at the moment that he was. I don't think she was in the bathroom with him because they had to, you know, knock the door down. But I think uh, I mean, maybe I, I don't know. I don't know. But she, um, you know, she was obviously there. Um, and I read her behavior as, you know, pretty normal, complete shock for somebody who's probably never seen a dead body before or been next to somebody who's dying again. I don't know. Maybe maybe she has, but she was breathing very heavily. She had that weird, wacky, inappropriate smiling. She kept saying, oh, my God, that was so fucking weird, as if it was like a thing that just happened and passed and is over now. Um, it was a, you know, she tried to pretend like she was OK and could sit with the grownups and do work and you know, some people just do act incredibly weird like that when somebody dies. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad the writers took, you know, the care to consider Carrie's reaction um, because she's been, uh, you know, it hasn't been that long that they've been together. But, you know, she obviously is, you know, very close to Logan. Well, I mean, it's just amazing to me how I'm trying not to use too much hyperbole when talking about this episode, but it's amazing to me how deep the bench is on this cast where even a character like Carrie, who, you know, has started up as very much a background player, became a little bit more prominent, but, you know, nonetheless, hasn't gotten a ton of like really big scenes to play over the years. Someone like Zoe Winters just like really has their fastball, like ready to go. I, I mean, because this scene was the first note that I made about this episode when I started. Yeah, taking, it was the first thing you said to it me. Was the first yeah. thing I wrote down. I was like, it was insanely <laughs> good, like just facial acting. Like she seems to, like she looks like 20 years younger. She looks like a teenager or something in that scene. Like she just transforms. I'm sure there's like, I don't know, there's some makeup there to make her look like she's been crying or something like that. But like, just like rubber face. To make her look younger just, too. Like, she's, really... she's, she's white. She's like, she's very, very wan in the the face um I, I i think she she saw some pretty disturbing stuff yeah yeah so a great scene i mean it may end up being sort of you know the the victory lap for for zoe winters because i don't, I don't know how much longer she's going to be around on the show well, i saw her i saw her briefly in a preview briefly in the teaser um, yeah but i mean like if we think yeah. about like what the the fate of somebody like carrie is in the situation i don't we don't get the sense that logan particularly respected her i highly doubt that she has any consideration in his will or anything like that so it's all basically down to you know how much dirt does she have that she can use to her advantage other Otherwise, she's going to be, you know, she's going to be out on lackey slack with the greglets of the world again. Aww. She's going to get bounced right back down to the, to the bottom rung. Um, Her and Colin. Ugh. Yeah, if we want to talk about Colin, we just get that one shot because I don't think we see him on the plane at all. Um, no, I think he's in the room with, like, with Logan the whole time. Yeah, we just see him that one shot at the end where in the background, Carrie's, be Carrie's getting into the car and you just see Colin standing contemplating the plane as it's, uh, you know, as it's touching down. Um, and, uh, you know, we'd... it's really devastated viewers after the diner scene, <laughs> like the average viewer was very, very shook by, by that call in shot. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great shot where, you know, you're not often invited to contemplate what is Colin thinking because he doesn't seem like somebody who thinks or feels a tremendous amount. Um, and even in that shot, you get the sense that, like, this is so he's like tr- he's like trying to feel something. It's like the Terminator trying to to, to learn why we cry or something like that. Um, but I'm also wondering what happens next for Colin. You know, he he certainly has dirt on the family and things that he knows. And he's somebody who I imagine I imagine his role is probably not on paper limited to just Colin to just Logan's body man. You know, he is like head of security or something for the household. So he probably has some role where he'll be retained or anyway, in the event of them, if they do want to get rid of him, he'll uh, I'm sure be very well taken care of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I just like imagined like does he even have an apartment? I mean, if he does, it's probably ridiculously nice because I'm sure he gets an incredible paycheck. But just imagining him like going home, like he he doesn't spend that much time at home, and like just after that day, like <laughs> it's so sad to imagine him going home sitting and just like uh, you know, I I don't have anything to do. Um, yeah, very very sad. Um, I don't get the impression that Colin is married. I think with a job like that, it'd be very hard. Maybe he's divorced and has, you know, kids. And But, um, you know, he's, it seems like he's a pretty, uh, a, you know, solitary type of guy. And um, I think that's uh, that was evident in, in that sort of lost, forlorn look at the end. And, um, yeah, really, really sad. Um, yeah, I don't think we're going to get, like, I, a follow-up episode where it's just, like, a solo following Colin around <laughs> New York a day in the life yeah. yeah he goes to he goes to the park feeds the birds man yeah so um that sounds great were there any other, other any <laughs> well to just uh, well, yeah maybe he will just to, to process the grief you know the grief if he can feel it again i we we don't know we still know very little about colin but yeah i'm just kind of curious as to what role he's going to play in future episodes if any because yeah just looking to the future uh for the show and the indication the indicators that we get you know tom does a little bit of his of his positioning here as we've talked about but the other person who is really starting to kind of scheme is uh is kendall um you know he's as we talked about he he, he is shocked like the rest of the siblings by the event, but he seems to recover the most quickly. He has that speech he gives where he says that, you know, every we are highly liable to misinterpretation and everything we do on this day will always be what we did the day that our father died. Like he is thinking about posterity. He is starting to think. That was weird rationally. to me. I mean, it, it is w- weird. You see the like very just like glassy shark like look in his eyes coming back. I was like, oh man, we got we got season one Kendall back. You know, he's <laughs> control the narrative. Yeah, yeah. Just the way he brought up like the SEC, and I'm like, what? What are you? What are you worried about? Like, what was he worried about in that moment? I don't know. What did he think that they could say well, that he, would be? Well, he's saying, well, his big thing, know? his big line is that, like, we don't want to do anything that's going to restrict our future freedom of movement. Freedom of because, movement, right, Because right, right. when they have, a, when they have that, that call where, by the way, because Hugo eventually comes in to act as a liaison, there's a wonderful reaction shot where Sno- oh, Snook is just, like, disgusted <laughs> by him. He's like, oh, I can't believe I have to deal with fucking Hugo right now in the middle of all this. She's, like, just revolted by his presence. But they have, They're like, how the hell did you find out already but they have that comes in (laughs) yeah but they have that call where you know frank and caroline everybody are saying like well we have to put this statement out you know to call in the markets etc etc it needs to come from the c-suite it needs to come from us and uh that's when ken says let's take five to think about
about this because the thing that he wants to steer his sibling towards is let's make sure that we have a role in this because right. he lays out their options. Like one of our options is he says, you know, just hand in the crown tomorrow, you know, approve the sale to Gojo. It's not our problem anymore. Or, you know, let's let's keep it in play. Right. So that's where they make the decision that like, you know, you guys, we're going to draft the statement. We're going to deliver it ourselves. It's going to be the Roy kids, you know, the, the C-suite. They want their names to be on it, you know, for the markets or whatever, yada, yada. Um, but uh, but it's important that the kids be united so that, you know, so that they have their options open. And I really get the sense that Kendall, his, he is already thinking a few steps ahead of that. It's, it's not just keeping Absolutely, the options open. Yeah. He has something in mind. Yeah, I, I'm scared. I mean, like, I... <laughs> You know, I, I think Kendall's been grieving dad for some time. I think he's really been done with Logan since the end of season two. And, you know, it's going to take the other two a little bit longer. But Logan's mostly been a burden for Kendall, you know, and that is what some parents become for their children. Um, there are people who are relieved when their parents die for a number of reasons. And, uh, you know, for for Kendall, I think that it's business, but it's, it's mostly emotional. That space is cleared out now where... Um, he can enter into the business world without um you know dad's claws uh on his on his back and you know i I, unfortunately i wish that he would take the time to maybe reflect and reconsider his whole life and become a better person but i think he sees this as sort of his destiny and what he's been waiting for and i think that's kind of what that last shot um you know of him a little bit further away from the plane he didn't go up to see dad Uh, i think that that was what that was a uh, foreshadowing well, i mean you see him you know after the initial shock he recovers and has and is very collected for most of the episode and in that final shot you see him allowing himself to feel something is it grief it could be it could be as simple as that but it also could be something that i thought about was just relief you know the relief that like his father is not there anymore as this burden this threat in his life, you know, um, thinking about perhaps his his personal baggage, thinking about the accident, thinking about the death that's on his conscience. His father can't hold that over him anymore. And yeah, is this an opportunity for him to resume what he sees as, you know, his destiny for him to psychologically step into the role of father and protector for his siblings? I'm sure that's in the mix there. And to resume that megalomaniacal scheme he had in season three, where he was going to like fix world history by like steering the company in a more like progressive direction it's interesting because i think as you know as the heir to this empire as you see in the beginning of the series he clearly has kind of a vision of himself as um really the 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 steward of this family business and that it's that logan is really invested in this family uh this idea of family that undergirds the business and that you know Kendall's ambition is to do his father proud and continue the legacy of the business. But of course, his father, from Kendall's perspective, his father is the one getting in the way of him doing that because his father is obstructing him at every turn. And so now suddenly it seems you can sort of see things click into place for him that he's like, it's 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 now time for him to take on this mantle that he always wanted to take on, you know. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that's why I'm I'm so glad actually now that they killed off Logan when they did, because it's going to be so interesting to see that play out. Um, Maddie, I saw that you had here the um, when they're on the phone with the C-suite and Carl's like, well, we thought 
you know, since you were estranged and Kendall's like, we're not estranged. We had a family function last night. <laughs> and that was so funny to me. At first, I thought it was just sheer delusion. But, you know, Brendan, again, maybe suggesting that it was, uh, you know, positioning. I think maybe it was a little both, personally. Yeah. I think it's like... I think he. It was very funny. He though. just like <laughs> we had a family function. Well, last it was like he he needed in that moment. He really needed to believe that they were a happy family and that he yes. was there with and he and his dad were on the same side and. Uh, right, and I think th- thinking of the estrangement, which it was, it was an actual estrangement. They didn't talk for three yeah. months. You know, it's it's not something he wants to really be thinking about right now, and he doesn't want you know the C suite to be thinking about it right now. It's like you know, fuck you guys, this is our dad. And it was definitely, you know, a little bit of both. Yeah. It's definitely a play. I mean, I, I see it very much as, as positioning as him kind of lawyering the facts to fit his narrative. Right. You know, he's like, aha, but you didn't know we were actually with our father last night. So how could we have been estranged your honor? Uh, if you, if we, if we were at karaoke together, he's it's, 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 it's a very much a PR, but yeah, he said the way he says estranged is a strong word. It is not accurate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's very lawyerly. <laughs> Yeah, he's very congressional hearings. He's yeah. so committed to this uh, sort of need to snap right back into an image of family unity and of of sort of the the you know the the we're secure as a unit and we're all a united front and um, uh, we're family and therefore everything's good between us. We had a family function last night. You know, it's just like sort of all this forms like a, a loop. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, the the end at the end of the speech that Shiv gives at Teterboro um, when she's sort of caught off guard and they ask Carol, well, "What's the what are the what, what are your guys's roles going to be?" and and she she pauses for a second, but then you can see her you know sort of political comms acumen really kick in and she's like, "Well, we intend to you know shepherd it through uh, and you know we'll, we intend to be there and you know she's very very firm about it and uh, so you know I think I think again you know Shiv and Kendall have sort of formed this alliance this season and uh it's very possible that the two of them um you know this is their this is their moment to really team up but uh, again Roman is is a little bit of a wild card because of everything going on with Jerry and because he's going to have the hardest time I think moving through in the world without his father that that moment at the end of that statement that is by the way that contains my favorite cut in the whole episode where Shiv says you know we intend to be there and it briefly cuts to what looks like a tv screen somewhere somewhere perhaps in that same space but it's a very unmotivated shot it's not clear from whose perspective that's from or where exactly that screen is so it is just this great moment of you see everything that they've been talking about of needing to position themselves it becomes in an instant captured you know by the media and it becomes part of the record of that day this private experience suddenly becoming public i thought that was just a genius little little cut there just that cut in particular reminds the viewer of what their own like relationality to Logan Roy is like uh, uh, yeah. we don't we don't information like if, if if he was a real person we would not have this access to this whole drama playing out we would see him as a figure on TV that whose death was announced as you know sort of a, a business event you know right 
Yeah, there. I mean, there is so much smart, smart filmmaking in this episode. You know, I, I, the the direction on the show is often condescended to. I find by by commentators. I think should who I think should know better. Um, there was a particularly good piece I'll shout out by a friend of the show, Adam Naiman, in the Ringer this week, where he broke down a bunch of uh, shots from this episode. Oh, it was and, terrific. Yeah, yeah, talking about just like the the interesting but very subtle things that the show does with composition. These are often things that I don't catch just because my you know you're focusing so much on the actors and on the movement um which is always very rhythmic uh, but yeah there are a lot of very very interesting compositions here too including that 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 great shot of the um the insert of uh, roman's phone where you see the the waystar stock ticker it was just like the plunging line right? oh god yeah he's like that's dad and that's i mean maybe that's that's the the most concrete thing that they could hold on to in relation to their father's uh, the, the the knowledge that the business was him and that they couldn't you know mm-hmm. feel that. I mean that's how in. things manifest themselves as as real in this world, right? Again, they're a company that like you know, do they produce anything on paper? They produce you know, like media, right? Um, I guess they do produce literally paper. They say they have a publishing arm at, at, at one point on the show. Um, they make indie movies. <laughs> yeah, but I mean like, but that's how things become real in their world, right? When the, when the market responds. So. Next episode, board, board's gonna get together. That's what they're saying. Yeah, I think um, if Ken's yeah. if Ken's got a move up his sleeve, then that's uh that's where we may see it. I don't know. I have, I really have Oof. I really have very few predictions for where it's gonna go from here. I mean, like we've we've talked yeah. about some of the direct we've already talked about in the previous couple of episodes the threads that the season has been setting up. A lot of that gets disrupted here, not in a way that like it couldn't come back, but you know, things are very much like, you know, the apple cart is upset, right? So we have, it's, it's all a matter of how people pick up the pieces. Um, I think it's interesting to think about the thread that we teased out of Roman's role at ATN, which is, you know, gets a big spotlight at the end of episode two, you know, if Roman feels in some way that he has to atone for you know mishandling you know his his last his last day with his father you know his last his last words to his father you know does he have to in some way try to honor whatever his wishes were for him right i think that's going to be an interesting thing to pick up just looking at stray notes here um laughing at the the bit uh where hugo has is carrying them a san pellegrino and they tell him to just like stay there hugo one second and he's just like he's there fussing with a san pellegrino He's such a douchebag, and I love when Shiv's like, "Go get me an Advil, Hugo." Like, just... <laughs> he's, no, like he's like right away. Everybody hates Hugo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he calls Carolina K on the phone, like she doesn't also fucking hate him. <laughs> so yeah, funny, poor Fisher. He Stevens. seems to kind of relish it a little bit. It's like it's he like, does. He's yeah. kind of liking <laughs> that everyone is in disarray, and he can kind of just be the guy in the middle of it all. Well, he's he's a he's a comms cruises guy. Like he likes to be part of this action. He's into it. He's, he's a little creep. There was one more thread with the um, with the uh, with with Cox that I wanted to clarify because I saw some confusion about this online. I, I think we have this right, um, but but Cox gave an interview where he said that he popped back to shoot some flashback stuff in later episodes. I believe he's misspeaking there because what I read Mylod say in a Variety interview with Kate Arthur uh, was that they had Cox come back and shoot what they called dummy scenes. Um, but that they are not actually using flashbacks. My lad was pretty explicit about that. So I believe we saw the last Logan material uh, in this episode. Um, you know, I, I... Yeah, it was very, very smart of them to shoot the dummy scene because I remember when they were, uh, they shot that Teterboro scene at Westchester County Airport and I remember 
people were posting about it and they, they were posting that there was an ambulance and everyone was like, oh my God, Logan's going to die. And people were like, this is too much. You guys should not be driving an hour north of the city to try and track down the shooting of and figure out what's going on. So yeah, I think it was uh, pretty crafty of them to, to have Cox come back and do some decoy scenes, but it would be crazy for them to suddenly introduce devices where they, you know, we, we would see a dead person. Like, I, I really don't think the show is going to do that. Well, again, this is my pitch. If they ever do a holiday special, that's where you do a flashback. That's that's yes. that's where you set the holiday special in the past and show us an episode <laughs> yeah. we haven't seen before. You you cast yes, it and, and shoot get... it like the opening credits with like the the young version. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna de-age Brian Cox. His his, his son is also an actor. We just get him to do it. Oh um, really? Interesting. Yeah, I haven't seen him in anything, but but yes, yeah, yeah, he has a son who acts. Um, but, 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 yeah, I mean, the other they did play this very well because there's also. I don't know if this counts as a spoiler for an upcoming episode, but they did shoot like some funeral stuff. And I remember when that happened, yeah. everybody was like, oh my God, it's Logan's funeral. But it was very confusing because yes, Cox did show up to shooting on that day. And they also did this thing where somebody had a big photo of Ewan that they were carrying around. They were like, oh, it's Ewan, it's Ewan's funeral. It was very crafty. They played that very well. It was genuinely quite confusing. It was hard to know what to make of that. Yeah, the uh, o- o- occupational hazards of, of having a hit show. You got to... <laughs> <laughs> you got to confuse the masses. Yeah, the the stands and the New York Peps are just all over the place with this. They they they, they couldn't they couldn't go on much longer. Um, yeah. Any favorite lines? I loved uh, when Kendall says, "We'll get a funeral off the rack. We can do Reagan's with tweaks." It's just like, <laughs> like man, you got that you got so that ready funny. to go, man. I just love like the the total. That's just like there's there's no pretending any of them are going to be involved with planning a funeral or anything like that it's like oh somebody else can take care of that we'll we'll just buy somebody else's funerals how they think about everything it's like we'll just everything well, what's yeah. the nicest funeral i can think of reagan's funeral we'll we'll, we'll get that one it's like what do you mean <laughs> so um i like jess is gonna have to go research funerals now for, oh, for poor jess. oh, the, oh my that God. little bit there was that little bit of jess on the phone where he's just like he's like i need the best heart doctor in the world the best airplane medicine expert and i want a conference call yeah. take any of those things when i need the next minute and a half and she's like uh okay he also he he, i also like that he threw dr judith uh logan's uh series long personal doctor under the bus he calls him a lazy fucking bastard like as if he should have been on the he should have taken another plane to get to the plane (laughs) just like great classic irrational grief stuff exactly how kendall would you know they just you know they know these these characters so well Oh, there was a, I, I don't know if you saw this, Gabby, but they, they mentioned at the end that the statement needed to come from Frank or Simon or the board. Do we know who Simon is? Yes. I couldn't. Simon was. I couldn't find that in no, any of our notes, have, right? No idea. There is no record of a Simon. There's no So no we'll record. see. Maybe one of the new guest, uh, you know, yeah, I don't actors know. will. will We'll, we'll come in and, st- and be a Simon. I don't know who that is, but yeah. I'm still waiting to see. Uh, oh, is that the guy from, uh, what is his name? From Breaking Bad? Um, yeah. You know, I'll be him. Forget his name. It's it's so funny how Michelle Pancel is, you know, his wife and she's in the show too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Anna. The act- I forget I forget those actors' names. Sorry. Gretchen and, Gretchen and, and Elliot, Elliot from, from, Breaking- from Breaking Bad. Yeah. Sorry. I don't know. Their- I forgot their real names. Um, or Annabeth Gish. I'm still waiting to see Annabeth Gish show up yes she, I, I, yeah, I hope yeah. she has a big role but we'll see uh, we'll see we got some time 
Um, Maddie, thank you so much for joining us. This was a lot of fun. Yes, thank you. It was absolutely an honor. I feel like a, a little bit of a, a like an interloper getting to join for the biggest episode of the series so far. Luck of the draw. <laughs> no, it's wonderful. <laughs> but it is a, a true pleasure, and this has helped me process it. I think. That's good. We're we're all we're all helping each other uh, cope. Yes, get get through it. <laughs> uh, anything that you would like to plug, Matt? Anything you've got coming up? Uh, anything you're programming that our New York listeners should attend? Um, actually, yes. Although it hasn't been announced yet, but um, I'm working on some outdoor programming for the summer. Um, a couple of series of all free admission outdoor screenings. Some taking place on Governor's Island and some at Lincoln Center. Uh, so keep an eye out. It'll be. Uh, word will be dropping soon of what that's all about um oh and and, um, and my nice. fiance charles bromesco just published a book colors of film and i highly recommend it it's a beautiful uh beautiful book and uh look it up it can be found wherever books are sold yes i i have my copy it's a very 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 handsome volume and we, and we may be speaking to charles a bit a bit later in the season so stay tuned for that um Okay, well, uh, I guess that's it for this very momentous episode. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks to Gabby. Thanks to Maddie Whittle and to producer Dan Black. If you're enjoying the Roycast, the best way to show your support is to leave us a rating and a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your app of choice. The second best way to show your support is through the square link in our bio. Roycast is a passion project. We incur minor ongoing fees related to producing and hosting this independent show. The content will never be paywalled, and we thank those who have supported us so far. We'll be back next week to discuss another new episode of Succession's final season. Until then, take care of yourselves. Goodbye. It's just the rain.